You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're podcasting from CNU 26 in Savannah, Georgia. This is one of my favorite podcasts we do. We, we did this one a couple of years ago in Detroit. The topic of this one is young people and CNU. And I'm offended right off the bat because I tend to think of myself as a young person, but I look at my gray hair and I say I'm maybe not as young <laughs> as when I first came to CNU. You all are truly young, so we can, we can start with that. Younger than me, anyway. We've got a pretty big panel here, and we're going to try to explore what it means to, to come to a, a first CNU or an early CNU and get connected to people and what your background is and what you're doing. So I want to start on the far end of the table, and we'll just do introductions. Dan, you and I are Facebook friends yeah, and Facebook. have been connected for a long time. Your last name Baisden? Baisden. Yeah, you got it. I got it on the first try. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a cookie afterwards. Dan Baisden. Where are you from? <laughs> uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Okay. And give me a little bit of your background. I uh, worked uh, about 15 years in radio um, okay. uh, all the way through high school. Oh, so do you want to just switch places? Yeah. You can, yeah, we stand on that side. <laughs> <laughs> no, I worked in radio and uh, always loved cities. I uh, had a background in urban sociology for a few years. And Wait a uh, sec. Urban sociology. Yeah, that's what I originally Describe, studied. Describe. Go into detail. What, uh, what does an urban sociologist do? Uh, studying the like the, the makeup of the community, the people, the, wow. the way they use it, um, yeah. and whatnot. And then the the college actually canceled the program, so I went into ro- radio for a while. Okay. And uh, and then Seems I decided a natural transition. <laughs> and I wanted to go back into uh, uh, studying cities, so I'm finishing my uh, degree in urban planning currently, and also an executive director of a Main Street organization. Oh, great. Where, where are you going to school right now, then? Arizona State. Oh, okay. And where's the Main Street program that you're uh, Van Wert, Ohio. So right across the border from Fort Wayne. Uh, how are you going to Arizona State? And then is this just the miracle of modern technology? Yeah, online. Oh, yeah. okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> That's cool. You're working in Ohio. I though. work in Ohio, live in Indiana. Oh, okay. It's nice. It's only a 30-minute drive. Yeah, so. yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Pass the mic to so- Sophie Hicks. I wanted Hello. to call you Sophia. It's okay. I'm sorry. I get that a lot. Don't my, worry about my, uh, it. <laughs> we have a girl on my softball team, yeah. my daughter's softball team. I am the coach named Sophia. So Sophie, yes. I will try not to screw that up. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you so much. Is, yeah. this, is this your first CNU? Yes. <laughs> Dan, I didn't ask you. Is this your first CNU? No, you're, no. you're shaking your head. Okay. This is your first CNU. Yeah. Give us a little bit of background. Okay. Um, so my name is Sophie Hicks. I'm actually from Ontario, Canada, Windsor more specifically. Okay, this is why you're coming across as so polite. You're a Canadian. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I know, eh? Although I've let Canadians on the mic before and they start cursing and doing all kinds of things that just seem very un-Canadian. So I'll, I won't do that. Don't worry. Okay, go but, ahead. Yeah, I'm studying architectural technology at St. Clair College. I'll be going into my third year. Wonderful. Um, How did you wind up here? I mean, what, what brought you to... CNU. So one of my professors was actually already a CNU member and he talks about urbanism a lot in his classes and I'm like oh that directly relates to why I got involved with architecture in the first place. So just through that figuring out more of what new urbanism was all about regarding walkability equity and just the diverse impact it has on neighborhoods and local communities. Yeah. Those are all things that I love and want to be involved in. Where are you living right now? LaSalle, but more people just say Windsor. It's a right across from the border from Detroit. I know actually. exactly where it is. Yeah. Yep. I've been to Windsor. I gave a talk in Windsor a few years ago. Yeah, okay. I really enjoyed it. 
it's always fun when you cross the border. Canadians talk. Well, let me put it this way. Minnesotans speak like Canadians. So yeah. I find myself very comfortable there because I don't have to, you know, I can just be at ease and, and everything kind of feels very homey. Yeah. And well, we would happily have you back for oh, sure. Oh, that would be a lot so of fun. doors open anytime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Andrew Rodriguez. Yes, sir. How welcome. Are you? I'm awesome. How are you? Doing well. Is this Thank your you. first CNU? It is. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to CNU. Thank I'm you. happy that you're here. Give us a little background on yourself. Sure. So I am a city councilman in Walnut, California. Okay. Um, which is about 30 miles east of Los Angeles. Okay. Um, very suburban uh, yeah, bedroom yeah. community. Grew up there. Did my undergraduate degree at Rutgers, and one of my professors at Rutgers was a founding member of CNU. Really? Um, Who was that? Tony Nelson. Oh, sure. Yeah. Great guy. Uh, he planted the seed for new urbanism, walkability, and what I'm really passionate about. Yeah. After graduation, moved back, uh, back to California. I uh, wasn't happy with some of the stuff going on in the city. Decided to throw my hat in the ring, and I won. Wow. Um, I, did you expect to win or I expected to, I don't okay. know if the city expected no, me cool. to win, but I, some people, some people yeah. run because they just want to have that yeah. experience and want to raise issues. Some people run yeah. thinking they could win. Yeah. You ran thinking you could win. I did. And I you did. knocked over 2000 doors. Um, my city okay, is so about 31,000, 31,000 yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and I'm also a graduate student at the university of Southern California studying real estate development. Okay. So. Excellent. Excellent. Why are you here? I mean, you said the professor, but... Yeah, so my background is in urban planning. I'm a planner professionally for a private firm um, in the Pasadena area. Okay. And uh, I'm just really passionate about cities, making sure that we build cities the right way. The suburban experiment right. uh, really destroyed the landscape in the United States. Yeah. Um, and I want to make sure that we kind of go back to our roots and create strong towns, sure, right? Sure, sure. And it's just... What a great idea, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's awesome. So, I love hearing it come yeah, out of and, your and lips. And we just updated our general plans um, okay. on Wednesday, and we hadn't done that since 1977. Wow. And so it was really exciting working with staff. One of our planners is here. We brought along Chris. He uh, He's nice. one of our staff members, and we uh, we did some really cool stuff, and I hope to talk about it later okay. today. Okay. Well, let's do that. Yeah. Mason Wallace. Yep. We, we hung out last night. Briefly. Yeah, <laughs> after we got soaked in the rain. Oh, that was fun. Give us a little bit of background on you. My name is Mason Wallace. I graduated from the Savannah College of Art and Design in 2015. I graduated in interactive design and game development, but I decided... Wait, is that game development? Yep. Like you were doing like EA Sports stuff and that? An environment artist, the guy who has to model the trees and the bushes and the pathways to make the game work. Sure, sure. Someone's got to okay. do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, keep going. So I decided to make a minor career switch from game development to land development. It, it's not that different. <laughs> and I'm trying to build Missing Middle in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I was born and raised. Okay. We wanted this one at the end of the second day, not the end of the third day, because I really want to get your impressions kind of at the halfway point of this CNU. This is not like a propaganda session, so I'm not asking you to like, you know, this is all, everything's awesome. But I do want to know, like, what's, what's one thing that you've gotten out of this gathering so far that has maybe been something new for you or something that's prompted like a thought in the back of your mind? 
Sophie's smiling like maybe you have something. Like you want everything? Please. <laughs> I'm like, I'm only 19 years old and I've been a CNU member less than a year. Okay. So there's so much important dialogue that's been going on and I'm just trying to absorb it all. It can be pretty overwhelming at times. Sure. So I'm trying to take as many notes as possible, but there's so many important conversations and it's great going to specific seminars to really narrow in and then be able to talk to people who have years of experience and learn from them. Okay. Mason? Uh, honestly, I came here for a morale boost. It's it's pretty tough being a small-scale developer. <laughs> <laughs> a mor- are you getting your morale boost? Oh, yeah. I'm talking to Mr. Anderson. I'm seeing Eric Brown. I'm seeing all the big players, and I'm listening to them, and, and I think I'm ready for round two. Okay. Okay. And I would echo uh, what Sophie said. Um, I, I feel like this a lot of uh, educational overload, um, but in a good way. We came here. I brought staff here as well um, because I want to get examples for some developments that are, are currently being entitled in the city. We want to make sure that you know buildings are close to the street, um, limit setbacks, walkability, and that, that's really why I'm here. So. Mm-hmm. Dan. I'm on the CNU Midwest chapter board, so I have to say it's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, no, in all, in all honesty, I was in Detroit, and sure. the discussion there started getting around building equitable and just cities. Right. And it's really grown over the last couple of years, and it's really exciting to see like last night's keynote about that and even more discussion about that in the future. So, I think I've been here every year since Madison, so that would put me, what, in like oh, wow. 2010 or 11? That seems like a long time. I feel like I'm a newcomer in many ways because there's people who have been here a long, long time. Some of those agenda items are not agenda items we would have had three years ago. I don't get to go to as many sessions as I used to. I'm kind of trapped in a room like this, which is cool. I, I enjoy doing this a lot, but I'm, I'm not getting a lot of that the way you are. Tell me why this is important. Tell me why this should be on the agenda and why it's an important part of the conversation. Well, it goes back to our mission statement as an organization. Uh, building places people love. And I think that goes to everyone. It's not just uh, small-scale developers or transportation engineers. It's, it's about building uh, cities for everyone and helping them love the place where they live. Andrew, how does this resonate with you as a council member, the focus of the, uh, of the CNU? Yeah, I think it's great. Um, I spent a lot of time today actually with sessions that focused on suburban retrofit. I think that applies greatly to Walnut. I wish there were more elected officials here. Uh, Most of the elected officials that I know and I work with um, do not have a planning background. If there was some way to get them here, and I actually want to thank my scholarship recipient. I'm one of the McLaughlin Scholarship recipients. Oh, wonderful. Um, Lucy Thompson, who's in the audience here. She actually provides a scholarship for elected officials to come and uh, come to CNU and experience and learn what good planning is, what good development is. And so I'm here um, because of Lucy. Fantastic. Um, But yeah, I just wish more elected officials were here and were able to learn the benefits of of smart growth and smart development. Sophie, I want to ask you about this broader, more inclusive conversation that we're trying to have here at CNU. This is something that I think for a lot of people in your age demographic, I certainly, with my daughters and everything, this comes very natural. How important is it for you to have that as part of the, the conversation? Planning as itself tends as tended over the years to be a mostly white, mostly male conversation. That is obviously changing as the demographics of the country are changing. But the planning profession itself has 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 had a real um, I don't think been resistant to it, but certainly been like a late bloomer to this. 
How important is this, uh, this change? Well, yeah, it's extremely important to have and it needs to grow and continue. You hear a lot recently about inclusivity and still it needs to be mentioned that CNU is majority white. So to be able to do what we want is to develop, help develop communities. We need to have a broad spectrum of people that are focused and know what's really going on in those communities. We can't just step in there and be like, hey, this is what I think you should be doing. We need to be asking those questions. Okay, what do you need? Because I heard somewhere... They were going around and I'm knocking on people's doors like, hey, would you like bikes? And then or in underdeveloped communities. And they were like, no, that's not what we need at all. This is what we actually need. Please focus on these things. So you really need to develop those listening skills and having people that represent that community is the best way to do that. And I've been Mason. I'd like you to follow up on that. In terms of that aspect of the agenda, how does it uh, relate to your work and what you're doing? Well, in Charlotte, North Carolina. You, you have historic African-American neighborhoods that, or working class neighborhoods that suffered from decades of disinvestment and now the tide is turning. We're, Charlotte, North Carolina is one of the hottest markets in the country. So I am watching lots. They buy them up. They built $600,000 houses where you could pick up a house for like 80000 maybe less than 10 years ago. And so it is changing so quickly and there are a lot of people that are scared. I want to know when you sit in on these sessions and these conversations, you, you run into people in the hall. I remember like the early days of coming here being like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, 120. Like, I can't believe I'm in a room with this guy who I've read all his stuff. And, and after a while, that kind of goes away because you run into enough people. I want to flip it around. And I want it to be like, okay, like I just ran into Mason. Hey, what's the thing that you're doing? And I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but I'm dragging this out so you get time to think about it. What's the thing that you're doing that you're working on uh, that's important in your life that if we could give you like the stage here and say, hey, you got, you got five minutes to tell the world about, uh, about what's, what's important from your perspective. What's the thing that's driving you right now? What's the thing that is important to you? What's the thing that you would want people to know? I think you all have a unique perspective it has a certain age component to it that I think is fresh and exciting. What would that one thing be? Who wants to start? Dan, go for it. I think the biggest thing that I'm working on uh, personally and professionally is uh, Rust Belt and Legacy Cities. I was sitting in a session today where they were talking about um, intake cities for climate change. And they look at Rust Belt as having all this open infrastructure that's just sitting there vast, wasted, or not used from people moving out over the years, it's a chance for us to go in and, and like what you're doing in Akron right now with uh, Jason and, and the rest of the team there, Kyle at night, reimagining, repurposing those places that we can go in, we can help, help them uh, rebuild, redevelop. And I don't want to say have a purpose again, because they never lost their purpose, but it's been a lot of have uh, a renewed purpose, a, a renewed purpose. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Because it's not going to be steel mills anymore. There's still some of them, but it's not, all steel mills and all, you know, blue collars. There's a whole different um, aspect of jobs and the way we live and where we work and, and all that. There's a whole part of the country that is kind of, I mean, I think we got a little bit of that in Detroit. You said you were there. Yeah. CNU goes to some beautiful places. I would like to almost see them go to Akron. I, I would know? love that. I, you know, I look at Youngstown as a city, for example, that lost what, 160,000 people down to six, 60,000 people and, right. and Detroit, 2 million down to 700,000 people. Right. Um, but, you know, going to those Akron's or, or Youngstown's or even Cleveland would be a big it, deal. It would be. Go ahead. Mason, you want to, what's the thing that you would want people to talk about or want people to know? 
the incremental change. Yeah. Small changes at a time. We don't really have a much in Charlotte. People have uh, done some great jobs fixing up existing buildings, but we're not like Baltimore and a lot of cities in the South that just, that have lost a lot of their historic downtowns. We have to start rebuilding these Main Street areas yeah. with new construction, and that's really tough right now. Yeah. What makes it such a challenge? Oh, goodness. Uh, zoning code for starters. We're overhauling our zoning code, but that could take years. Okay. And that doesn't guarantee success just because we're in the process. Right. So I'm watching this like a hawk. We have we actually have really young millennial city councilmen on our city now, which is great. They're pretty inexperienced. They don't know much about planning, but I think they're open to a lot of change. So I think Charlotte has a really a big fighting chance for this. Mm-hmm. How many people are there like you in Charlotte? The people who want to work at that 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 scale that are kind of ready to roll up their sleeves and, and do it is it is it a small group of people is it a growing group uh, who are your allies? Uh, my best estimates are about between four and two. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting started. Yep. Yep. Sophie, if we asked you to do a, a session or gave you five minutes and said you know we we want to know what like the top issue is for you the thing that you would most want to have discussed? What, what's that going to be here? I think for me, it would focus on community engagement okay. and really being aware of what's happening in small towns and cities. So in Windsor, for example, we have this place called Ford City. So you can tell by the name, it's very auto-centric. Right. So there's a lot of redevelopment happening there. And like you said, a lot of incremental work that we want to do. We've been having, we called it Dropped on Drulard, which was on a weekday. We closed the whole street and had a little festival going on where there was vendors, live music, as well as like graffiti going on just where everyone was able to go out and have a great time and be like, oh, this is what is happening in the community because it's known to be somewhere that not a lot of people want to go. So I'd say it's about engagement, really changing the perception of what people think of certain areas and getting involved as much as possible. Sure. Andrew, I'd like to hear from you on this. Sure. So somebody that's really made an impact on me um, is Ellen Dunham-Jones. A lot of her work... um, Brilliant. Brilliant. Fantastic. Suburban Nation, mm-hmm. uh, her material is just fantastic. And a lot of the stuff she proposed in her books, I tried to apply in my hometown. Last week, we just updated our general plan, which is super exciting. Um, and now we're heading into consistency zoning, which is like the second layer, kind of how we use utilize land. And I just hope that uh, we not only educate our residents as to why these changes are beneficial for the city, um, both livability-wise and financially. You know, that's an important part of Strong Towns, right? Sure, we need to be absolutely. financially solvent. Yep. But I also think it's important that uh, we engage residents who who are younger and, and encourage them to speak out at meetings. That's how we got our general plan adopted, right? We started a young professionals committee. Uh, Walnut is mostly single family homes. So we have one apartment complex that was built before the city incorporated and the rest of the city is for the most part single family homes. And uh, with California's housing crisis right now, you're, the average median home in the Walnut is between $900,000 and a million dollars. Most people my age cannot afford it. I'm 25. Right. Most people cannot afford that. Absolutely. And so yeah. we have a group of residents who are very active and said, hey, you know, there's misconceptions about apartments bringing in undesirable people, which is not true. Um, and we want a place to live. This is our hometown. We grew up here and we want to live independently. We want to start families, but we can't do that. So we hope that the city council can address this issue and 
start to make changes and policy decisions that will help us obtain them. Right. I feel like one of the challenges of voting for someone who's 25, and I mean, understand that at age 25, I had been in the army seven years, had done like, yeah. I, I was a pretty serious young man, yeah. but a lot of problems that I felt at that age were people taking me seriously. Cause I yeah. wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't have gray hair. Actually, yeah. my, my, one of my first employers said, it's hard to take you seriously till you have gray hair. Yeah. When you look at your position as a city council member, sure. how do you communicate with people who are not your generation, not yeah, ready? I, and I, it, it, it's, there was definitely a learning curve. I like to go out in the community and hold like uh, town meetings. We bring information of what's going on in the city to the different neighborhoods. It, it is hard. I mean, one time, I'll give you an example. One time I was in City Hall, uh, we were getting ready for a meeting and the guy we were meeting with said, he looked at me, he says, can you get me some coffee? Yeah. Yeah. And he thought I was the intern. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's right. like, no, I'm, I'm one of the council members. I don't get coffee. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, but I think if you're well-educated, um, I work very hard to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. Yep. And I think at the end of the day, if you're, if you do your homework and, and you're familiar with the information that you're about to vote on or give a presentation on, people will respect that. I vote on stuff and I'm held accountable for the stuff I vote on. So I do my best to make sure I'm as best informed as possible. And, and I just totally embrace that. Dan, I want to ask you a similar question because you were, you were getting a really challenging part of the country. Absolutely. A country that's dealing with not only a lot of land use issues, but a lot of like decline related issues. The opiate issue is a really huge in our, in, in your region. How do you engage on these kind of, existentially difficult questions with people who are like in a generation or two older than you in a way that I, I think is relevant to them. How do you bridge that gap from where you're at? Uh, first, I want to say uh, your interview with Chris Arnotti. Phenomenal. That was one of the greatest interviews I ever did. And it was because of he is an amazing person. I mean, he really, the stories he told and the way he told them are powerful. That's, you know, listening to that, Thank you for that. Uh, oh, yeah. absolutely. He's inspired me. And so has Sam Kenyonis, um, yep. who wrote Dreamland. These are real issues that we have to face. And I know that uh, I'm also part of APA. So I, I see that they're pushing this stuff out there, but nobody's taking a real hard look at it. It's just kind of like, let's talk about it. And then that's it. You know, there's no big push. So for, for me, how I look at it is it's just constant communication and education, trying to Oversimplify it sometimes has actually been beneficial as just explaining it as it affects somebody and your family. Telling that story, maybe not getting too educational deep into the weeds, but just being able to have those connections. Like you have somebody in your family that has dealt with opiates or you have somebody in your family that lost their job and had to move to another, another state because they can't find work anymore. How did you feel? So starting with that emotional connection first, that's my urban sociology side. And right. then um, being able to build that relationship and go from there. Right. But, and I think that's one thing that Chris does extremely well with it. And his photos he did for Medium, which unfortunately are all down. I, oh, are they really? I, I was trying to find oh, them the other day. Oh, that would make me sad. You yeah. know, he's coming out with a book supposedly this I'm, fall. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Mason, you're working in the incremental development field. Right. You, you're trying to make things happen. I'm sure you have to deal with permitting issues. You've got to deal with financing issues. What do you say to someone who looks at you and says, I, you're too young to be dealing with this stuff. You're, I don't know if I got instant faith in credibility with you. What do you do to overcome that? I might need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> 
I remember as a as a very young engineer being asked to do things that were like ridiculously over my pay grade, but yet probably not beyond my competence, just beyond what people would expect of someone that age. It was a challenge to basically prove to people that I was capable of doing this. You've got to have people that you're trying to get financing from who are asking serious questions of you. You've got to have people who you are dealing with as subcontractors. How do you approach this? How do you build that credibility? You have to break it down first. You, it starts with the sketch pad. You break down the sites. You, you look at what you can build on these lots, what should be built. And you work your way up till the detailing, till you start working on the financing, what they teach you bare bones in the small scale developers camps. And you just build upon it. You work with the Excel spreadsheets and you look at Microsoft Excel a lot, a lot. Yeah. And eventually you begin to form this coherent financial, structural idea of what can be built on a lot. And eventually you can sell that and you have to sell that to the bank. You have to sell it to the community, which is the hardest part that I'm learning. And you have to sell it to the planning department, which eh, that's always a bit of a uh, crapshoot. Right, right. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that community sales job. How do you approach that? How do you approach that in a way that... Uh, you know, that builds that credibility over time with people. I did it right in one neighborhood in Charlotte called Belmont. I think you'd love it if you visit it. It has an incredible, it has a very strong sense of community. I liked it so much that I'm moving there. So one of the things I did is I, I went to a duplex. We purchased it. We're going to fix it up. And it's like you talk to the neighbors and they've lived in this neighborhood for decades and they love that you're fixing up the building. And um, especially when you put the sweat equity work into it, like the painting and all the things that are painted in the rear. And that helps build up your credibility. And another thing is going to the little community events, like um, Build a Better Block had its first first project in Charlotte in the neighborhood of Belmont. And that was really fun to be part of. And you're just, you're exposed there. You're helping out with the community. You're meeting with the president and the other members of the, you know, the church and all these local organizations. And it helps slowly build your credibility. Right. Sophie, as an architecture student, as someone who is, in kind of the early years of a degree path. What is your like anticipation of when you get done? If you could say like, here's what I would like to be waiting for me to help make me a successful professional. What would those kind of things be? It would be to work in any way, honestly, locally to better the community and to better the neighborhoods that really do need that type of professional help that they wouldn't be able to get anywhere else and to really bring resources back to people being like, hey, this is what I learned. This is how we can apply it to these areas now. You called Windsor a small town and I'm like a truly small town. Yeah, no, it's not that much of a small town. It's right. basically, it's known for being the city for people who don't like cities. Sure, <laughs> sure, okay. So what I'd like to do, continue my finishing schooling there and actually go to Boston for a bit, get a master's in architecture and then bring that back Okay. with that knowledge that okay. I gained. Yeah. But is your desire to kind of be back in the, in the region? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay, okay. Because, so yeah, yesterday... I've been hearing around a lot. Like that's one of the best ways to be a part of the community is to stay there and really develop it right. with all the knowledge that you gain throughout your life. You're all nodding. Like that's very true. Yeah. Place, yeah. very important. There's nothing more rewarding than giving back to the place that made you the person you are. Yeah. At least who I am today. Sure. I want to throw out the word millennial and I want you to nod if you, because I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I've, I've kind of embraced that notion. Like, I'm okay with that. Are you all okay with the term millennial? Like if I, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not saying any pejorative if I say, okay, 
Let's talk generation to generation then. I said last week, I, I got this question about generations and I said, I, I think it's natural for every generation to be a bit frustrated by the generation preceding them and a bit baffled by the generation behind them. I wanna talk about that frustration and the, and the bafflement. I'm gonna do the frustration first. So, so let's talk about ways that you are maybe frustrated with Gen Xers. We can tag team on boomers. The way we're frustrated, when you, when you look at the world, what, what are the things that, you know, for you are like, okay, I, I, wish, I wish you understood this. I wish we saw eye to eye on this. I wish this were different. Andrew, so go ahead. Can you can I, start can I jump in? Please, yeah. So, uh, and this is all as friends, too. Yes, so we're yes. not, uh, I'm not going to take offense to this. No, no, and no worries at all. Um, California has a housing crisis. Really? <laughs> Terribly. Yeah. Many times. So I do a lot of work in the city of Los Angeles and sure. different cities around Southern California. And whenever I go to these neighborhood council meetings or these public hearings, um, in my professional capacity, not as a city council member, I hear a lot of homeowners who are generally 55, 60 plus older who come out to these meetings and say, we don't want, we don't want multifamily housing. We don't want mixed use. There's no need for that. Um, it's going to devalue my property. And they make all these excuses about why a new development shouldn't go in. And, and Chuck, you know, you're, you're a very strong proponent of incremental development. And I think over time, you know, what's, what was good in 1970 may not be the best use of land today. And it just frustrates me that, uh, that some, some people, not all, but older homeowners oftentimes go out and say, oh, well, you know, we don't have a housing crisis. When I was younger, I could afford a house. Why can't you guys do the same thing? Why don't you get to work? Why don't you get to work? And it's not. <laughs> it, it is yeah. not comparable. Right. And so that's, that's really my biggest frustration. Okay. With that. Dan, I see you nodding your head over there. You have frustrations. Can we get them out I of would, the table? <laughs> frustrations. Um, <laughs> hopefully I don't upset anybody here. Um, no, it's it, it comes down to me that the world is different. It's different today than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, even 25 years ago. Um, the malls aren't what they used to be. Um, not everybody wants to drive everywhere. You know, and it, it comes down to even housing or the fact that we have more school debt in our generation than any other generation in history. So we're not going to buy a house until we're 40 because we can't even afford going to the bank to do that. So uh, understanding that the world is different, I think, is the biggest frustration. And um, having a seat at the table and being able to say the world is different. What we're working with, the cities, the, the, the people, the constituents, everything is different. Right. Mason. I will say on behalf of the millennials that we salute you, fellow Generation Xers, <laughs> and your struggles. <laughs> Uh, come on, now you got to have some frustrations with uh, maybe not the Xers, but you, we can we can collaboratively rip on boomers here, can't we? No, oh, it's it's like it, they're kind of like cheap shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh. okay. I'm, I'm I'm good with cheap shots. <laughs> All right, um, let's see here. We're in, we're getting close to twenty trillion dollars of debt, as much as since the U.S. has been in since in World War II. Yeah. Except we have, we're not fighting Nazis. Yes. So this is going to be. One logic puzzle that's going to take at least 20 years to fix, maybe. Sure. But, sure, we'll work with our fellow Generation Xers to get this done. <laughs> Sophie, across the border, I'm, I'm guessing we still have the same generational uh, yeah. tension. 
Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Considering Windsor is known as the automotive capital of Canada, I'm thinking like we don't need this much parking everywhere and it's okay to walk places. You don't need a car for that. Right. And really being able to like embrace other technology that's coming along as well. Do you find that that is a difficult conversation? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like even people my age definitely still have an attachment to their car. I think because of where we're growing up. I think it's really interesting. When I was a kid, my grandmother Neither of them have a driver's license. One drove, but didn't have a license. The other one uh, never drove and, and didn't have a license. It was interesting because that was a generation that didn't grow up with the automobiles. Today, people who are senior citizens today grew up with the automobile. They're the first generation who has had it from essentially birth till the end of their lives. I feel like that changes the dynamics of how they look at things a little bit in a way. I'm kind of commiserating with your frustration here. <laughs> okay, let's go the other way then. Those damn millennials. <laughs> I happen to uh, have deep admiration for the energy that millennials bring. And I think like the open-mindedness. Although I do feel like I'm living in this tsunami of millennials. And, you know, this, this kind of meek generation X, this kind of slacker generation of like, we have no control over anything. It's dominated by these two groups. I feel like we're going from one despotic master, the, the boomers and their priorities, to this other one that's just kind of like crazy and all over the board and I can't quite figure out. Talk to me about uh, being a generation in transition. There's a lot of people in my generation who look at millennials and say, they might think cities are cool now, but wait till they have kids. They might think like this lifestyle is cool now, but wait, wait till they get a little bit older. They might not want a car now, but give them a few years. How would you respond to, to that kind of blanket characterization of where you're at in your life right now today? I feel like what that is, is it's another generation trying to impose what their values and their career path was on you. Why, why is that not applicable? Sophie, you're kind of closest to the mic. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I feel like that's the reason we're all here is learning how we can make mixed development communities in a, the best they can, essentially, and being able to adapt because we can't get rid of suburbia. Like at first going into CNU, I'm like, oh, we have to get rid of that. It should be cities. There's no stopping it. But what we can do is develop cities that can have families live in them through mixed use housing. Mm -hmm. Andrew, do you have a... I wish uh, millennials were a little bit more engaged in the political process. Uh, I think there's a lot of apathy. We're going to live, theoretically, the longest in terms of uh, the policies being made today are going to affect us for the longest period of time. And it's really important for us to, to get out there and go to these city council meetings, go to these planning commission meetings, and provide input on stuff that's going to affect us for the next 60 to 70 years. It really frustrates me that when I go to these council meetings, a lot of the, most of the times, unless I'm calling them and say, hey, can you come to this meeting? Please come. For the most part, it's, it's all older, older people. I, I went to bed on election night 2016, not thinking that there were any millennials who voted and then got up the next day and saw them all protesting at airports and, and yeah. other places yeah. and realizing that maybe there were, yeah. what, what, what happened there? Was it, was, is this a thing where you're saying like my generation's not actively engaged enough? It feels like the millennials are maybe the most activist generation of all, or at least since the boomers in the sixties, but, but that, that activism tends to be 
I tweeted something yes. or I, and that's, you know, and that's, and that's the problem. Okay. Right? Is, I, I'm, I'm giving you the stereotype. I have, I have so many people, so many of my friends, I'm in California, so we lean a little bit more left. Sure. Um, and they're always like, Oh, I hate what's going on in Washington, DC. They whine and complain. And I asked them, well, did you vote? And they're like, no, nah, man, I was too busy. You know, I had, <laughs> I had to go do this. I had to do that. And it's like, well, then you can't complain that you didn't go out and vote. So. I, I think that'll change over time, um, but... Dan, go ahead. I, I think the thing with millennials is we're engaging the community different. We're not... We're Describe not, that, because I, I'd like to understand that, because I have to say, like, I am a little bit baffled by that sometimes. So I, I have a board of directors, and I oversee a large volunteer base, uh, and, and you, you go through the same thing. You probably have volunteers with Strongtown. Exactly. So, yep. um, the volunteers, I've noticed, majority of my volunteers are in their 20s and 30s. Which sure. are millennials, right? Uh, and it's harder for me. Some I'm sometimes able to get older people to volunteer. It's easier for me to engage with that younger younger generation. So they're getting engaged, but it's not the way we've always been told how people get engaged. And so I think that's where the disconnect is. Is well, they're just slackers. Well, no, they're not slackers. They're just doing it different than what we've always done it before. Okay, okay. Mesa, you want to enter into this generational fray? Uh, I guess so. It's going to be those kind of cold, hard costs that are coming up. The fuel cost for cars. To me, a car is just a debt machine of, of about $8,000 a year. And it's like, you know, I could use that $80,000 for other things. That's what I'm thinking of that's coming up in the years or the rising price of houses in, uh, in the suburban areas, at least where I live. So you're going to see millennials that are going to be much more willing to live in fairly small places. Maybe not as bad as California, but we'll, we'll get there eventually and hopefully uh, build enough housing in, in time. <laughs> are millennials going to embrace the suburbs at some point? At least partly. Yeah. They, I mean, I grew up in suburbia in Charlotte. It's one of these really beautiful neighborhoods. The streets are tree-lined. It's very quiet. You walk around, everybody's walking their dogs. There, there is that peace and, and serenity that you don't get in cities. Or like in Savannah, Georgia, where in some of these old rickety houses, I got woke up at 5.30 a.m. by a, by a giant uh, foghorn. Did, did any of you guys got woken up by a foghorn this no. morning? It was at 5.30, and it lasted for like 30 seconds. <laughs> you don't get that in the suburbs. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Andrew. So I grew up in the epitome of a Los Angeles suburb, right? Mm -hmm. And I loved it. Like the schools were great. I made my best friends are actually, I would say, more from my best my friends school. are suburban. Yeah, <laughs> my best friends are more from my hometown than, hey, dude, than I yeah, yeah. Um, from my hometown. Yeah, um, but I think millennials want a different type of suburb. I yeah. think we definitely want more entertainment options. We want more food diversity. I'm a foodie. I love diversity in food. We want places that, that feel good. We don't want the typical cookie cutter strip mall or the cookie cutter big box store. That's not appealing, at least to me. Um, right. And right. I think that would that's uh, across the board. People want something a little bit more unique and and, and, and special. Sure, yeah. sure. Dan, please. I, the suburbs are never going to go away. We've built them. So are millennials going to live in them? Yeah, it's because they exist. And the thing is, is I don't think we're going to continue to see as much McMansion development as we're going to see just people infilling the existing suburbs. Those houses are going to devalue over time, and it's going to make it more affordable. Um, you're still going to see a large population want to live closer to walkable downtown first-ring suburbs, but those exurbs and, and further out suburbs, they're, they're still always going to be there. They may not look the same. I mean, you did the whole series on Marietta, and it was, you right, know, right. it was really fascinating to see what they're going through. Yeah. 
Sophie, do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, gonna... just a small thought that it's still important to keep the options open for people. So technically, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have these suburbs because, yes, people are still going to want that. They'll want the white picket fence, let their dog run around in the backyard type of thing. So as long as we have those options still, as well as the downtown use, I feel like really can help our future. Right. There's a sense that, and this comes from the whole, you know, give every kid a trophy for trying, that whole meme that I think is over overhyped. But there is a sense that this is a generation that uh, tends to like experiences more than stuff. It's a generation that tends to, I think with the social media, at least come across as being slightly more narcissistic, maybe more inwardly focused. I look at like where we're at now as a country with a lot of the fragility that I see, not only in the development pattern, but when we talk about things like climate change or debt or what have you, how tough is this generation? How like ready for hardship are you? Because I, I feel like there's a lot of it like, yeah, okay, like we can handle these challenges. But then there's also this part of me that's like, no, we're going to wilt and go cry and like call on our mom to try to help us because I had to have my mom come to my first job interview. Push back on that for me, please. Because yeah. well, I want to have optimism in all of you. I definitely have, yeah. yeah, the media thing that came to mind was that, is that you mentioned earlier, post-election, you immediately saw people out in the streets fighting for what they thought was the right thing. Or, like, wrong thing, I guess. Right. So I guess in that stance, like, that's the example I can think of. Like, no, we are willing to go out there and fight for what we believe is right. Okay. Please, Dan, go ahead. Um, I see this generation as extremely resilient. We may break off into more tribal resiliency where we're working together in smaller communities and smaller neighborhoods to rebuild. And if we have another issue. But we went through the recession in 2008, and we're still here. Granted, it's harder and, and it hurt our pocketbooks a lot more, but um, we're still here. And, and, and you know, you, you talked about the election, not to, not to get too political, but it was the millennials that helped put Connor Lamb in District 18 in Pennsylvania in office or Doug Jones in Alabama. So it was that the turning tide with millennials that I think helped put that over the edge. Sure. Mason, you want to take this? Sure. Go ahead. In a way, I don't think we've been completely tested yet. It might come in 10, 15 years, another 208 recession that really hits us in the gut. But it's like our, it's our teamwork spirit. It's really that that's going to help us pull forward. And that's going to be our test. Okay. Andrew, go yeah, ahead. I would, I would have to agree with Mason on that. I don't know if we've fully been tested. And I think that'll come in several in a couple of years. But I don't like the stereotype that we're all whiners, that we all feel self-entitled. I don't think that's true. I think that's just uh, a stereotype that others uh, somehow came to the conclusion of. Maybe because um, we grew up in such a different world with social media and with all these different technologies, rapidly changing technologies. It's, it's new to a lot of people who may have not grown up with that, and they come up with these assumptions, but I completely disagree with it. Yeah, yeah. Right now, we have two job openings at Strong Towns. We're actually in the process right now of hiring two people. I hire people a lot. I ran my own consulting firm for a decade. I now have run Strong Towns for almost a decade, hiring people often. Why should I hire a millennial? And I realize we're painting with broad brushes here, but you walk in the door and you're in your 20s and you're, you're, you're ready to go. You're ready to work. You're 19. You want your internship, whatever it is. You're ready to go. What am I getting with your generation? What's, what is that thing that, that is going to say, you know, wow, I, I really am excited to have someone like this. Understanding that you're all a little bit different. You all have different skills. 
But in general, like, what is it you feel like it's your, because I can give it to you for Generation X. I feel like, you know, we may be like the slacker generation. We may be the generation that like can, you know, like, okay, everything's going to be crappy and we can just accept that. But part of the, the bliss of that is that, you know what, when things don't go well, we tend to do okay. We tend to be like, all right, well, let's roll up our sleeves and make the best of this. We're kind of a, give us your, uh, I was going to say a swear word, you know, give us your, your crap sandwich and we will, uh, We'll, we'll find a way to take care of it. Yeah. What should be my optimism about hiring uh, millennials? I feel like it's our sense of awareness and open-mindedness to everything going on regarding whether it be politically with technology going on or in scientifically because we grew up when climate change is being largely talked about. And so that's something millennials focus a lot on. And through that, compared to, I would say, Gen X not understanding as much regarding the climate and how technology is important to that and as well as things just going on socially and culturally. Like, we have so many resources. Yes, we get made fun of because we're on, like, Twitter, Facebook all the time, but that is how I learned a lot about CNU, how I learned about Strong Towns and the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I would say we're uh, very energetic. We have a lot of energy. Um, we're resourceful. We're tech savvy. Um, we utilize social media to reach as many people as possible. And I think like a nonprofit like Strong Towns, that's really important to reach out and use these platforms to, to um, send your message to as many people as possible. The millennial way is the way to go. <laughs> uh, Dan, you want to weigh in? Sure. Um, I would say a couple things, you know, following up on that. I agree completely with what you guys have said. We're really good storytellers and brand experts um, because that's what we've grown up around from watching television to reading, you know, all through high school and everything that we had to read and study. We became really good at that, that part. Um, and then in addition to that, first time I was in college uh, was right before the recession in 2008. And so I had all this student debt that I had. And so it was really being able to figure out how to work two jobs, how to be able to rent a house, be able to pay all the student debt. So I was able to do all these things. And uh, I would say that because that I was, uh, you know, millennials, I think are pretty resilient. Right. Mason? I just want to add to the outreach. It's not just tech savvy. It's not just Facebook savvy. It's also you got to talk to the local head of the community. You have to talk to the head of the church. You have to talk to uh, your city councilman. It's that it's the millennials will generally outreach to all the major players and also even just go down to go down the street and just talk to random neighbors or talk to the local corner store owner and see what they think, their thoughts on the ground. If you were going to give advice to CNU, if you're going to give advice to an organization like Strong Towns about how to not just reach millennials with a message, but actually like activate and engage millennials. How do we get them involved in, in the case of Strong Towns, how do we get them involved in a revolution to change the direction of this country? What would you say the way to go about doing that is? And I'm not asking for like a magic bullet. I'm not asking for like the, you know, the one simple thing, because I realize this isn't simple. What's the advice that you would give to me? What's the advice that you'd give to Lynn Richards? What's the advice that you'd give to someone else who is, uh, you know, engaged in this? How would you tell them to proceed? Andrew, go for it, please. I would say provide a message that, that shows what the consequences are to our generation with, because of our development pattern over the last 60, 70 years and how we can be better. What is our ultimate potential? What do you see as the best potential of Walnut? or Los Angeles or any other city, how 
how in 30 years, what do you want your community to be like? This, this is our message. This is the strong town approach. This is what your community could be um, by the time you have kids. And I think that, that would really activate a lot of people. Dan? I would say it starts with what you're wearing on your suit jacket. Yeah, Jane. Um, I want one of those, by the way. Yeah. Um, Jane it Jacobs. Gi- it was a gift for me today from oh, someone, man. Awesome. which was beautiful. Yeah. I got to figure out where to get one of those. Yeah. Ad. But but Jane Jacobs, at her early part of her career, was able to start a movement in Washington Park. So I think it's it's getting back to the roots of movements and urbanism through that and being able to step on those same, same footsteps that Jane Jacobs did. Thank you. Sophie, you want to? Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, make it as personal as you can with what Jane Jacobs did. Yeah. She started in her town. She was like, hey, this is a problem that we have. This is how it's going to affect you. So if we can bring that to millennials to see how it can affect them and also bring type of, like, historical consciousness to see, oh, this is what she did. If we don't continue her legacy, this could happen to us. Thank you. Mason. Keep the long game in view. It's not just what can be done in two to four years. It's what can be done in 10 years. And then when that 10 years is done, what can be built upon that? Because we're right at a time when things are going very slowly. There's a lot of conservative forces that are pushing back, maybe against progress or working uh, to get solutions. But I think the speed is really going to pick up. And we're trying to get that groundwork done first. That was Mason Wallace. Sitting next to him is Andrew Rodriguez, Sophie Hicks, and Dan Weiston. Thank you for being part of the Strong Towns podcast. Let's uh, give them some generosity for their time. Thank you, everybody. And uh, keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the city! The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.